And I thank you. And welcome, dear friends, to yet again another fuse box. This is number 10, Cold Snoids. I'm your host, Mark Rose, and I thank you for pushing play on this particular episode, which again almost didn't happen. If you've been following my sloshy adventure in the last several episodes, I got handed another little interesting note, you can probably tell already, uh, a cold uh, <laughs> sort of developed after all of this. Well, you know, that's not really hard to believe since uh, there hasn't been a working furnace in this particular uh, installation for about two plus weeks. We're calling it cold snoids because, uh, and I can't use that picture on the, on the uh, show art, ladies and gentlemen, because that is a copyrighted idea. However, Robert Crumb created these wonderful little creatures called snoids. And they live in another area in your body. But the cold snoid, he lives in your nose. And uh, they're just terrible. You know, they masquerade as something helpful. And then, that's right, doorbell rings. Ooh, how are you? How are you doing, huh? I know I'm fine. Uh, you don't mind. I'm going to bring some things Here with he me. Is. Thank you. And, uh, I just have these. I got uh, This is a steamer trunk. Let me do that. I have that. And then uh, there's this whole wagon train I'm going to take. So if you don't mind, I'm going to go up. Yeah. And, and, then, right. see what <laughs> and then... Yeah. Okay. Uh. Ooh, how about a nice lunch? Yeah, that'll be fine. Let's see. Put out some then they just crawl up yeah. into the center of your nose some things. and, uh, and ooh, set out a picnic ooh, lunch. And we'll put these over here. This would be good. Yeah, and maybe some light reading. Read a few Nabokov yeah. novels. Mm-hmm. Very thought-provoking. Hmm, yes. And, uh, you know, have, a, have their way with it. Which tends to leave you in this altered state of consciousness, which can be good. It can also be kind of strange, and uh, it's been strange in these uh, ensuing days. Along the lines of this particular topic, uh, allow me to elaborate a wee about this development. The, uh, the house I'm in, I actually have been renting for nine years, and it's a perfect dwelling for what I do, and uh, very comfortable and extremely accessible to most Portland area folk should they need to be in here to do something. So I have absolutely no complaints with this place whatsoever. And the guy that I rent it from is a prince of a guy. But he travels a lot. And he travels outside the country many times. Which is exactly what happened on March 20th when we had a water main break and I experienced about four feet or so of water in a crawl space under the house here which luckily did not get into the studio and affect any of that. That's fine. But uh, it did take out the furnace and did need the cooperation of some very hotshot restoration and plumbing people and HVAC people and all that to kind of get this thing back to where it was. Well, most of that is taken care of. But here's where it gets interesting. I don't know about you guys. Uh, My insurance company, whenever I've had an issue with well, let's say an automobile or something. Typically what happens is they write a check to cover said damages. And at least in my experience, that said damages has been made payable to whomever it is that is to do the work, particularly if it's an automobile thing. 
In this instance, the fine upstanding folks at this insurance company decided, well, no, we can't do that. We're going to make it payable to the insured. And in that case, well, that was the guy that owns this place. Problem is, he's in another country. <laughs> and so the checks are sitting at this nice guy's house that are totally inaccessible to the folks doing the work. I guess that's to be expected in, in this line of work. I, You know, on my end of things, if somebody was to say, I would gladly pay you Tuesday for something we're going to do, eh, you're going to get a higher rate. <laughs> that's that's kind of how it works in this world. But... Uh, in this instance, we had a, a furnace that, that was taken out by all this water. And so, like I said, that we haven't had heat in this place for a couple of weeks. And so that means multiple space heaters and all that good stuff. And some very angry Japanese pocket squirrels. Yeah, they've taken to smoking cigars and stuff. I don't know what the... You, throwing stuff around and... Yeah. Little bastards, you know, they got some kind of hell rabies or something. Yeah. So anyway, my intrepid landlord, when uh, the news got to him back then, was on a uh, flight to Nepal. <laughs> Which, uh, it's, a, it's not Vegas. I'm just, I just want to say. You know what I'm saying? It's it's just a little outside the zip code. And, and as a result, you know, hey, cellular communications may be iffy. Because uh, maybe Kathmandu has something going on, but I, I think in some of the remote areas he was headed, yeah, probably not. Probably not even satellite phone is going to reach this guy. So it, it's been sort of a, a challenge maintaining connection. And so what we were left with was this dilemma that we had furnace repairs that have to be made, obviously. And here's why. I mean, you're thinking, what's well, April? It's springtime. Why should we care? Well, in the Pacific Northwest out here, it can get into the 30s at night and does and is. And I can hear that temperature falling right now. And yeah, it gets a little nippy. So uh, in addition to the, uh, you know, space heater thing, which seems to do all right, that's fine. Well, this is an older home with single-pane windows. <laughs> a lot of the cold air kind of creeps in, you know what I'm saying? And can chill you like son of a gun. So, yeah, it's been a little challenging with all that. And I don't think my landlord is, is aware yet of this issue, <laughs> of the, the checks in limbo. It's just a strange situation, and uh, I'm sure it'll all get resolved. But, uh, you know, in the meantime... That's what's going on, and it's a, it's a kind of an interesting challenge. So as long as people who are visiting my fine facility here bring parkas, it's all good. <laughs> oh, man. Many people have said, you know, well, you really ought to just buy a house and do all that stuff and be respectable and all that. Well, yeah, but, you know, being respectable isn't really high on my list. But I'll tell you what, I'm sure glad I didn't do it right now. Because, <laughs> yeah. When you have to reroute plumbing from the street, uh, yeah, it's not, not something I'd want to be investing in right now. But I am sure we will get all that wrangled out and um, we will move on from there because that's how life is. And despite the fact that I have been sampling various kinds of rope, 
jute, and other implements that might work around a ceiling fan, just in case the noose idea might just work in the end. I don't know. What do you think? Huh? And just to make sure that we're justifying the balances correctly, I think it's... Yeah, it's time to check with Chelsea once again to make sure that he's still making sure that the squids of destiny are still in the closet. Yeah, it sounds doesn't sound good to me. But anyway, Oh, I just, I just wanted to say that uh, I thought that the, the Overnightscape Central program from uh, what, what might be a couple of weeks ago now on Schlock <laughs> was an absolute delight to do. And uh, I think that perhaps this would be a good thing to put in the, the craw of the Anunnaki. I think maybe uh, a show with Doc Slees, Frank, uh, Mike Booty, PQ, and maybe uh, me and whoever else wants to join in on uh, things related to schlock film would be a very fun moment. We all obviously have spent a a curious amount of time (laughs) in that genre, just sort of soaking it all up. And uh, I think that would be a fun show. And, you know, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Also mentioned on that same program, the Overnightscape Central, the host for that illustrious show, PQ Ribber, mentioned something about a, a brush with fame sort of meeting he had with uh, artist Richard Corbin. And I guess that was at an event of some type. My intro to Mr. Corbin, who went on to do a lot of overground sort of comics and, you know, worked with Warren Publications, as PQ talked about for many years, Uh, My introduction to him was through the pages of underground comics such as Anomaly and Fever Dream and Death Rattle and Dan and all those things. And he's quite an artist. He was one of the um, purveyors of airbrush art as it applied to the comic form pretty early on. He was quite gifted in that department. But what I I was reminded of was uh, his voluminous apologies in most of the magazines that he published under Fantagore Press, where he was either apologizing for deadlines or more specifically, he was apologizing for, well, you know, the colors didn't really come out the way I wanted, and, well, we had to hang the printer. I'm sorry, I thought you said charge the colors. I'm charging the and, colors. Yeah, just like that. Wait, you're Oh, they put him in the press. Oh, ooh. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, he was apologizing all the time about, uh, you know, unfortunate color reproductions and stuff like that. And, you know, to me, I'm looking at this going, wow, that's pretty intense. That's wonderful work and bravo and all that. But it just goes to show you again, someone, you know, as we all are in some way, attached to whatever we, we do intimately and we don't have the eye of the audience who is really just kind of sucking that in as an experience, you know. Unless you're a critic. Well, that's a different thing. But uh, this also kind of triggered another memory of a book I bought in the 1970s about um, the art of uh, Little Nemo in Slumberland. And this was a a series of uh, funnies, if you will, that were published in the early 1900s by Windsor McKay, 
who was an amazing draftsman. If you've ever seen any of these, you know what I'm talking about. But the publisher who put this out in the 1970s, this is the first really full volume edition of this to come out back then. And it was published in Italy. And they too were apologizing for the fact that they couldn't really capture the color on the original artwork, which is like amazing to me. I'm sure now it would be no problem. But, you know, back in the day they were challenged. And yet it, again, it's just fabulous to look at. But I, you know, not having the context of what they were actually working with, you wouldn't really know. But uh, these are amazing pieces of work. And again, if you haven't seen any of the work of Windsor McKay or Little Nemo in Slumberland, I would urge you to seek it out. It's some of the most interesting work of that period. I, I don't know that there was anybody working at that time that kind of stretched the boundaries as far. And uh, he's also the father of probably one of the earliest animated cartoons known called Gertie the Dinosaur, where he actually physically interacted with the character when he took the show around as a sort of a novelty program, projected this image, and he had a choreography that went right along with it. And uh, I can imagine at the time, since even the idea of the motion picture was still kind of new back in those days, you see this guy interacting with an animated figure live is kind of a, that would, that would be new. That would be new. But sure is entertaining. Like I say, though, the Little Nemo stuff, really breathtaking. So if uh, you get a chance, check that out. Not believing in a god or any larger metaphysical order, Senator Fusky could speak freely on the campaign trail. If I or any of my colleagues in the Senate have lied to you, cheated you, the taxpayers, stolen from you, or contributed in any way to the general corruption and malaise that has dominated our government for so long, may God strike me. And uh, one last thing, one little uh, commentary about past shows and so forth. Uh, Nate from Wisconsin who uh, chimed in on the, um, I guess it was also on this uh, schlock show, was talking about uh, a band uh, that was mentioned in the previous Overnightscape edition centering around jazz. And uh, he happened to mention a, a, a group that he wasn't sure whether or not they were considered schlock or not, but, uh, you know, they may have delved into the cheese a little bit. Well, I got to tell you, uh, uh, those who, who listened to my segment on there, I uh, included Weather Report in my jazz overview there. And the segment that I was alluding to was a much earlier album than some of the stuff that people are most familiar with. I don't think that we could call Weather Report schlock. I think what we might say is that they definitely, as a result of becoming sort of accessible to a really large audience once uh, Jaco Pastorius joined the, the herd there. And uh, they, they entered a, a very, very different period. But they always remained grounded to their particular harmonic framework and their, their overall idea. It got a little poppy at times, but I really do think that it was intended to do that because if you look at albums that followed that period, they go right back. So it's... Again, it was one of those issues where if you were part of that time, you could see what they were drawing on and it was fueling this expression and they were good at sort of following that. I really do think that those guys have gone on to do 
remarkable work since, particularly Joe Zawinul, who has who just passed away not too many years ago, but prior to that, had created the Zawinul Syndicate, which opened up this whole world music thing to a level that has never been explored quite the same way. So if you're interested in Weather Report and anything they they might be contributing to this experience of music, I would definitely seek that out, uh, Zawinul Syndicate. There really isn't a bad album in there. One of the last albums that he did was called Brown Street, where uh, he was able to unite with the incredible German big band, WDF, and do this record recorded at his club in Austria. And uh, it's live, and it's I don't know how many pieces. The WDF is a big band, so I'm not sure exactly how many pieces there are there, but it's a big, big band. And uh, they take some classic Weather Report pieces, some Zawinul originals and so forth, and just have their way with them. It's an amazing double CD set as well. But meanwhile... Meanwhile, at the Sunnydale Nursing Home. So a friend of mine posted on his Facebook page this rather curious, um, what appeared to be a pseudo-documentary about some very extraordinary amusement park rides to the point where you were, you were questioning, is this real or is this some kind of a joke or what? They were really, really crazy rides and very, very well uh, integrated into the backgrounds. So... You kind of get the idea that what we're seeing is a CGI of some kind, but the way it was done and and the intention of those who produced this was such that I was really curious about it, so I started doing a little research on it and came across this entire six minute mockumentary called the Centrifuge Brain Research Project. And uh, the folks responsible for this are no one I'd ever heard of, and it looks like it might have been an international thing. Uh, The names are quite unique. And I have a link here in the show notes to it so you can see it for yourself. But the thing that struck me about it was some of these rides and the way they had placed them were right out of your dreams. They were the kind of thing that inspires terror and wonder at the same time. Not just, oh, isn't that horrifying? This is the kind of thing where you get that sense in the pit of your gut that, 
first of all, it somehow feels really familiar, but at the same time, it's kind of terrifying. <laughs> and it's in the dream state, we will experience this from time to time, e even with ordinary things occasionally. You're opening the sock drawer and there's this, you know, well of terror that happens for some reason. But this thing was very unusual. Maybe it was the shapes and colors and how it was photographed, but there's a segment with a roller coaster ride that is truly awe-inspiring and at the same time kind of digs down deep into that dream state experience. And, you know, I'm sure everyone will have different reactions to it, but these were really well rendered and they were placed within the, um, the actual setting in such a way that it's really clever, the lighting and, and everything. Yeah, and you know it's impossible. I mean, <laughs> if there really were rides like this, no one would have survived. But it's a very fun thing to watch and very smart. I urge you to check that out. It's, um, it, like I say, it's in the show notes, and uh, it will not be a waste of six minutes. I promise you. Good evening. In local news, a Portland man suffered a heart attack last night in an alley near the Pearl District. The victim is recovering now in the hospital and is expected to make a full recovery. Police believe the man was walking through the alley when the attack occurred. The motive of the attack is not known at this time. It's believed the heart was waiting in the man's chest cavity before it violently attacked him. Authorities say the heart is purpley red in color and about the size of a human fist. Police say the heart may not have acted alone and are looking at cholesterol and fatty foods as possible contributors in this case. Multnomah police officer John Taylor was on the scene. Yeah, well, these types of attacks are happening more frequently, I'm afraid. Uh, they can be quite violent. Uh, occasionally there are false reports that uh, turn out to be murmurs, but uh, the one tonight was the real thing. In other more positive news, according to donut giant Krispy Kreme, the glaze used on their popular dessert may cure autism. Find out more at 11 o'clock tonight. So I wanted to include this uh, piece that we just completed, um, well, actually today, as it turns out. But I, uh, I really did want to include this um, in this edition. This particular piece was written by Jody Lorimer, and uh, we alluded to this story uh, back on the Twisted Epiphanies episode. I think it was in part two. Milt, was it in part two? Yeah, that was uh, Fuse Box number six, Twisted Epiphanies part two. Great. It's called Have You Seen Jesus? As uh, Jody was explaining on that particular show, it's actually uh, based on a, a series of, of true events that happened uh, in the town she grew up in and uh, sort of an amalgamation of things, but they all happened. And, uh, <laughs> and as we all know, truth can be so much weirder than fiction. So uh, without any further ado, here is Have You Seen Jesus by Jody Lorimer, another twisted epiphany. George Morrison was our garbage man. He was a sinewy man without an ounce of extra flesh anywhere on him. And he could sling that garbage can like tossing a light jacket over his shoulder. He lived just down the road from us. His house was sort of thrown up against the hill under big pines and was always in the shade. The house was a tattered dark green color, the first and last coat of paint it ever had. 
and over many years it had settled into the landscape, the roof line sagging in the occasional board, giving up the fight to gravity. Seemed all it held up the front of it was a bristling boneyard, rack after rack of deer antlers, testifying to a great many illegal venison dinners. There was a huge double garage he could barely walk his skinny self through among mysterious old machinery bits he couldn't part with. The ground out front had been liberally soaked in grease, blood, and who knows what, and hammered into concrete by one disintegrating truck after another. And the dogs. Bingo and King, two pest-ridden, undefinable hound pit bull creatures who lived their nasty lives chained to two of the big trees out front. I dreamed about those dogs sometimes. The road went down a decent little hill from our house to theirs, so I could get up a good head of steam before I passed the Morrisons. I'd fly as fast as I could past there, because me on my bike was one of the most entertaining things to happen to those miserable creatures all day. Lunging at me, they'd jerk against their chains, howling, wailing, gnashing their filthy teeth, wanting only to sink them just once, please, just once into my tender neck. My heart racking in my chest, chilling the blood in my veins. Despite the July heat, I spun past my feet a blur on the pedals, out of the shade and into the sunlight. Intact and alive. My brother Doug was going down to mess around with George's son, Gil. Gilbert was just born at the wrong time. He belonged heart and soul to another time, one of Indians and flintlocks and powder horns but he also would come see my brothers and bring all his Elvis 45s. The most dangerous man of his time, I was never invited in, but I'd sit outside, enraptured by that voice long before I knew sex existed. It was the 4th of July, and although the last thing he was interested in doing was spending time with his baby sister, I tagged along to the Morrisons because Gil's cousin Danny was gonna be there, and he was in my class. Danny would later marry, have children, build a nice big house, and run cattle like the rest of the clan. And shortly after, he'd lose his mind in manic frenzies, forcing his wife to throw the children in the car and escape late one night, narrowly missing running over her husband who threw himself on the hood. Danny drank himself to death, or rather, he was drunk in his trailer when his heater burst into flames and his sad, uncared-for soul departed. But for now, as a child, he was a handsome, decent kid, and I liked him a lot. And it was Fourth of July at the Morrisons, and all that misery hadn't happened yet. There was a weaselly pack of feral Morrison cousins in from Reno who arrived with boxes of illegal fireworks that'd blow your fingers off if you weren't careful. Gil's mom, Babe, was a skinny, hard-faced woman who perpetually had her whole head set with flat, tiny pin curls crisscrossed with bobby pins. She spent that day trying in vain to wrangle the boys so they didn't set fire to anything, setting up buckets of water just in case. So, it was a party, and George got dinner. He tugged a dim-witted cow into the field, and with the same easy motion of tossing that garbage can around, he pulled a handgun from the back of his belt, set it in the white curls above those stupid eyes, and blew the cow's forehead off. 
Then the men proceeded to pass the whiskey and dress the meat. Bingo and King were translated to doggy heaven when Danny delivered a bloody pile of fuming entrails to the edge of their chain perimeter. George's mother was about 135. Grandma Brown lived in a squalorous little hut at the edge of the pines. About four feet tall and bent in half, she was near to fossilized. She swore at everybody and everything, but especially the damn dogs. She kept yelling at George, carving away at the cow, Save me the brains! Save me the brains! Of course, she'd have to find the bullet in there before cooking them up. The Reno cousins were off blowing things sky high. The women had taken an armload or two of the cow to put on the fire, and the men seriously settled into the whiskey, cigarettes, and off-colored stories about faraway, exotic Reno. George was going to wash up, and he asked us kids if we wanted a soda. So we followed him along the electric fence back to the house, Doug and Gil in front, and Danny and I tagging along behind. George turned to Doug and put on a purposeful face. He took a long draw on his cigarette, clenched it in his teeth in a kind of a grin, and squinted one eye while the smoke curled up around the angles of his face. He laid a bloody hand on Doug's shoulder and said, Have you seen Jesus? If this man had seen Jesus, it must have been while he was harrowing hell and George was along for the ride. Taken a little aback, not the least by the reeking hand on his shoulder, Doug muttered, No, no, he hadn't. George casually smiled, kept that hand on his shoulder, and grabbed the electric fence with the other one as a bolt of electricity shot through Doug. And George laughed fit to die. And on that note, I think we will once again scuttle behind the refrigerator where we belong And I want to give very special thanks uh, to Kevin Cook, Jody Lorimer, and Jeff Pollard for your contributions on this particular edition. And I also want to thank all of you, once again, for showing what extreme taste and refinement you all have by pushing play on this episode. Next time, some big, I mean bell ringer size big, big news on a new semi-regular segment on this program, and a horn of platypus-sized... I'm sorry, I didn't mean... Well, we'll just have a lot more audio frivolity and and quasi-rational chaos coming your way. So, once again, I've been your host, Mark Rose. This has been Fusebox, and until our next cartoon... (laughs) 